thousands of years, we have been living in a spiritual wasteland. We have been metaphysically malnourished. This is especially true for the so-called Western world. Materialistic science and thinking have been in the front seat, so to speak, and knowledge about our inner essence has been stored in the trunk. Perhaps we are entering an era in which we rediscover these, uh, essential, this essential knowledge about our spiritual connection and merge it with science. Welcome to Mind the Shift. I am Anders Bolling, your host. Today, I am very happy to introduce you to Betty Kovach, who has done extensive studies of the shaman mystic spiritual tradition of prehistory and how this knowledge has survived all the way to our time, often under the radar, despite harsh, harsh suppression from the church and, and state. Betty Kovach earned her doctorate from the University of California in comparative liter literature and theory of symbolic mythic language and taught these subjects for 25 years. She was for many years chair and program chair of the Carl Gustav Jung Society in Irvine, California. About 30 years ago, dramatic personal experience, experiences changed her life. Within a three-year period, she experienced the death of her mother, her son, and her husband in separate automobile accidents. And these deaths gave rise to changed states of consciousness, which she has told about in a book, The Miracle of Death, There is Nothing But Life. In her latest book, her latest book, Merchants of Light, is a magnificent review of the ancient knowledge about life and death, humankind's inner essence, and our connection to the spiritual realm. Welcome to the podcast, Betty. Thank you so much. Your introduction was perfect about our condition at this time and what is being required of us and possible for us at this time. Yes, and I hope I got everything right in the resume, so there's... Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Your book, Merchants of Light, which I've just read, uh, it is actually, it's, it's, it's magnificent and it's packed with wisdom and knowledge, and it's almost difficult to know where to begin, really. But I was, I, I, I want to I start in that, and I want to start to talk about this, this book uh, particularly. Uh, and I was thinking, if to looking at the very long line of the shaman mystic tradition, I don't think there is any other group of people on this earth uh, who represent that better than the San people of Southern mm. Africa. Mm. I mean, they are, they are considered to be descendants of the original Homo sapiens sapiens, and they're still here. Yes. So can you please start, start, start <laughs> telling us about what significance the San people have has for this uh, for the for the spiritual evolution of of humankind yes i think just knowing that they exist uh, was a gift to me i read uh, lawrence vanderpost who had uh, lived in south africa and had been around the San people and then while i was writing about them it, they really just gave me joy to write about them to read about them to think about them because they really had achieved 
a way of living in the world uh, completely in harmony with the rhythms of nature. And they discovered the ability uh, to trigger that valve that kind of limits our consciousness for daily life. They knew how to trigger that so that it would open and they could experience cosmic consciousness or universal mind in which we are all born. We all live in that. But this valve has become so tight that we don't even know the, the ocean that we live in, the ocean of consciousness. But they learned how to do it so joyfully. And one of the things that I loved is that uh, I actually reading Bradford Keeney, I learned a much deeper insight into this ability of the sand bushman through uh, his work. Uh, and his wife, Hillary. But when he told them that there are people on the earth who really work at this and meditate, they sit uh, for hours in meditation. And the, the son looked at them and said, oh no, how sad, they were all alone. Well, we would never do it alone. Uh -huh. They dance, they touch, they hold, and they experience this as a communal uh -huh. uh, consciousness, which of course it is. And it, they don't think of it as one person achieving this. No, it's we are all in this ocean of cosmic consciousness, the heart of which is love and and communication and communion. And th that just gave me so much pleasure. But uh, just to know that, and they, they say they've been around for 65,000 years. Now, archaeologists uh, say 33 years, that's when they see some of the paintings. That would be uh, at the same time that the cave cultures existed and the paintings were being done. Of course, the cave cultures usually thought of as having existed earlier but it wouldn't be if the sand are correct. And I rather think they are, but nevertheless, here we have uh, the, these two cultures and we don't know as much about the cave cultures as we do the sand because uh, there were people uh, who actually uh, talked with shamans from the sand people and they talked about the meaning of these, uh, the rock art and how it was their spiritual journeys and that they etched in stone their experiences with the other world. So I, I think to know that these first people knew how to live in harmony with the earth, uh, sustainably, we could say for sure, and they knew how to have joy. And that's, I think that's so, so important, is that no matter what we go through, if we can see it in the larger dimension, we can have joy. We're going to grieve, but we can also allow that to open up into a joyous world of understanding what we're up to. Yeah. Do, do you know if they are still, I mean, they are still here, still around. They're, they live in Namibia and Botswana mainly, I think. In the yes, South they do. They and, do. Yeah. Are, are they are still practicing these old traditions, these old shaman mystic traditions in the way that they used to, or or have, have their has their culture been in a way destroyed by modern modern well you know graham hancock calls them the murdered culture mm. uh, they uh, were treated so badly from so many different groups of people and in certainly i think it was not until the 40s or 30s i don't remember exactly which when uh the government of south africa no longer sold licenses to go hunt them i mean mm. this is how misunderstood mm. they have been 
And uh, so, but yes, the answer to your question is yes, they, they are still there, few, very few. I don't know how long they'll be able to survive. And there are the elders who still hold that ancient teaching. Mm. And Bradford Keeney and his wife uh, were able, Bradford spent 20 years off and on with them. And they, he was able to experience all that they experienced and they trusted him and they actually gave him uh, their teachings and it is it is out now uh, it's a teachings I, I don't remember the exact title but it would be under Bradford Keeney they have actually allowed him to put that in English and and have it published because they realize that this is such a crucial time for the earth that we have so forgotten this ability that they have naturally and the joy that we can have in the earth uh, and the creativity. So they wanted to give that and they have, I don't know how long they can survive because mm. there are very, very few of them, but I'm very grateful to Bradford Keeney that he, he actually, it's an interesting story because uh, when he was younger, he was playing the piano and so deep into the music that he had a cosmic consciousness experience and it was so filled with love and joy and light that it, it's he didn't know what to do with it and it lasted <laughs> it lasted all night and into the next day he simply didn't know what to do with it and i think he ended up going to mit <laughs> in peru purdue but he received his degree <clears throat> and then he was teaching in a university and he was invited to teach uh, in a university in south africa and I think it was about a week before he left, he had a dream and it was a map and it showed him exactly where he was to go. Yeah. And so when he got there, he got a team together and he did go. And as he was going across the desert, he saw the sand running toward him. And they, when they got to him, they said, oh, welcome. Yeah. We have been waiting for you. They also had dreamt about him. Yes, they must have. And I think it's interesting that at this time, when everything is so on the line, that he would have that vision, and then the vision to go meet them, and that he would, and mm -hmm. that he actually has saved their teachings for the West. That seems to me a miraculous kind of event. Yeah, it's a wonderful story. I remember that from the book. Yeah, I was, I was amazed. So, and then they have these ancient cave paintings you said that they've been there for about 66,000 years I, I've read somewhere that they might have been there for 100 100,000 years but nobody actually yeah. really knows but the cave paintings are dated like some 35 to 40,000 years back I think and they're contemporary with the these famous paintings in the caves in Spain and France are they depicting more or less the same kind of imagery and and uh, representations of the sky and the, the inner world and all that well, they're mainly etchings on the face of rock, but they're all over Africa. I mean, it's just Im immense. I mean, they've been around a long time for sure, uh, but they're more etchings and the images are different. Uh, in the cave cultures, the color and the movement are incredible, uh, but in both cases, they are definitely this expression of spirit, of soul, of inner life, and our connection to that. I mean, that's always so important. It's like 
the cave wall was thought of not as something solid, but as that membrane that if they could draw the image on it, it could come through to us. <laughs> so it was always that mediation and participation in the spirit world. Mm. Yeah, and and it's just recently that that the West Western science has recognized that these paintings were actually uh, showing something very deep. And some, I mean, it, it was mm. when they first were discovered. I guess they were just uh, dismissed as something very insignificant. Oh, you know, it's just it's so sad. It really the cave cultures, the discovery of them. Of course, people had discovered and they saw these things. They were phenomenal. But then there was a um, a man who had portable art from Altamura. And mm. he then he was knew that that was the same had to be the same age, the painting as this portable art, which was, you know, it was identified as being very early. And when he presented that to uh, the Society for Anthropology, he was laughed out of the place. And yeah. he was made fun of for years. And the so-called scholars who rejected everything he had to say wouldn't even go look at the cave. It was many years later when people had gone and they realized they couldn't take that position anymore. But this has been something that's, that's sad too, is that universities often are so slow to recognize changes, but uh, nevertheless, uh, it was recognized. And main, while it was recognized earlier, it was mainly in the 20th century that we really came to realize, wait a minute, this is something really amazing and, and spiritual. But many of the people who were doing the work in the caves would have nothing to do with the spiritual part of it or the shamanic. And when uh, David Lewis Williams and Jean Claude uh, actually worked on the shamanic aspects and published a book on that. When they went back to work with their colleagues the next summer, no one would even mention it. Mm. You know, it just, they you know, weren't going to accept it. Or maybe later there was a joke about it. And this is, is so sad, you know, but nevertheless, now it's pretty much accepted that yes, this is shamanic. This is, and I, when I went to the caves, uh, caves, I, you know, when you're in it, you, you, you know that, <laughs> you know? Uh, I mean, that labyrinthine journey to get to uh, a place where you can stand up and see these incredible paintings. Mm. I mean, it's, it's quite an experience, but yes, it was in the 20th century that it's pretty much accepted now, late 20th century. Yes, this is shamanic. Mm. And what helped so much was David Lewis Williams work with the San people and he understood uh, shamanism and had done so much to preserve the rock art in South Africa. So he, he could see the parallels. Mm. And if, uh, so that was, that was a wonderful thing. And, but now we have these two cultures that, that radiate our early longing and achievement of communicating with the spirit and living harmoniously in the world. And I think the cave cultures lasted at least 25,000 years peacefully, and the sun at least 27,000, maybe much, much longer, you know. So this is, this is our natural response to the world when we're not thwarted and suppressed, I think. Mm. I mean, those many, many years, and now other places are being discovered, and that were places of worship and connecting uh, to, to spirit, to, to who we are. Yeah. Yes, I mean this is the default uh, sense that, that that small children have, of course, when they are very young. I mean, the, the, 
everyone can remember that if if one thinks back uh, long enough, uh, far enough. I mean, that life is magical and that, mm. that there is purpose and meaning to life, which we oh, are yeah. then talked out of when we get a little <laughs> older, we, we go to school. <laughs> That's a good way to put it, talked out of. Yes. You know, as a kid, I just thought, is, is this it? You know, when I would hear what people had to say. Yeah. But uh, I went to the university and of course there is the Western worldview that is nothing but matter. Forget this business about spirits, nonsense. Mm. There's, uh, you were a fluke of nature. It's all a fluke of nature, an accident just happened. And there's no meaning, no purpose. And when you're dead, you're dead. I think that is the most dreadful and destructive uh, worldview that any people could have. And I think we're the only ones who had it. Yeah. And no wonder there's such illness today. I think what we're experiencing now, as we're discovering all of these things about our potential, is that we're also going to have to deal with the woundedness and the illnesses and the darkness, we'd have to say, of consciousness that is a result of this narrow, restrictive, incorrect thinking, which quantum physics, thank God, has taught us that is not correct. There are many dimensions of reality. Exactly. Yes, we will come back to that in a little while. I think it, it, we have, as you say, this is the this is the natural way of seeing life and, and seeing how things work. This this shaman mystic tradition tells us what what's natural to us, and it, it's been it's been with us all along, but it's been suppressed and it's been put in the trunk, as I said at the beginning. Here. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, so true. Yeah. Then. What, so what happened, I mean, the, the Sun people represent the, the long line of this tradition from 100,000 years ago until this day. But then along the way, there have been so many cultures and so many, so many things happening and it's been suppressed. So what happened, if you fast forward a little bit here, the so-called civilization came along, which we call civilization. And I, I mean, you can, you can have a discussion about what that is, but there were sedentary cultures, there were kings, there were, were pharaohs. There was top-down rule, and the, the Egyptians, the Greek, Judaism, and Christianity appeared, and the knowledge about our true essence was suppressed. I mean, not to, that's not to say that these people didn't didn't believe in gods and, and all that, but there was, I mean, this direct connection between a human being and and these other realms was was uh, was not uh, recognized. So tell us what what happened in these early sedentary mm-hmm. so-called civilizations. I think what is really important, what you said, is that the connection, the experiential connection, is that later it was a preaching, a teaching, a telling, a believing, and that was not our original way of being in the world. It was we didn't have to believe anyone because we had needed the experience of it the experience, gnosis, at which the church so suppressed later is no experience. But this mm. was the natural, of course, how we're not believing something someone tells us, we have to experience it. And it's a completely different uh, understanding of the world. But uh, after the upper paleolithic or the cave cultures in Europe, there was uh, old Europe, which the archeologist Maria Gimbutas uh, discovered, and she's now being phased out. It's interesting. Uh, I, I read her material when I was working on this years ago, and actually when I was working on my doctorate, and she then became uh, a person on my committee. And of course, some of the others didn't know who is this, you know, but she worked for years in old Europe, and she uh, 
said there are probably at least half a million artifacts. Mm. I mean, that world is when you work with it, you feel that same kind of joy. Uh, and she told me that she said, you know, I could hold one of those artifacts in my hand and I could feel it. But she said, of course, I can't. <laughs> I can't tell this. And uh, it, it turns out that this was for several thousand years, but by about 4,000, and she saw the connection to the Upper Paleolithic, but about 4,000 BCE, people began to come from the East. She called them Kurgans, the waves of warrior types, violent, completely different worldview, completely different way of being in the world, of fighting and conquering and so on. And they started coming in in waves. And gradually over a thousand years, we kind of merged this old European or cave culture, even the connection with this incoming group of people. And they, of course, achieved dominance. And basically they are the ones who have dominated in culture since. Mm. Uh, but when she discovered these artifacts, she realized here is a completely different set of symbols. These people lived by different symbolic systems and structures. And uh, the feminine was very, uh, I would say central, I would say, but it wasn't dominant. It wasn't a matriarchy. The male and female, it appears, worked together. But the symbol of a woman was, of course, nature herself, in which every man, woman, and child has that yeah. within them. She was heart consciousness. She was life-giving and life-sustaining. And she brought death, but death was never seen without birth. It was a cycle. There was no death without birth. And it was just a, a wonderful uh, revelation, you might say, to see these artifacts and, and work with them. But of course, uh, she was uh, <laughs> denied and ridiculed. But, you know, she uh, read and spoke 24 different languages in that old European area. Wow. I remember she said to me, oh, Betty, you know how it is. You learn one of them and all the rest come easily. And I said, that's not my experience <laughs> no, yeah. Yeah. at all. But nevertheless, she, she really did know what she was talking about. She was from Lithuania. She had seen how they had more of that ancient symbolism because the church didn't come there until later. So that existed. And one of the major symbols of that culture was the labyrinth. And that was a, an incredible, incredibly beautiful symbol, and it was part of a ritual. Uh, and I think Karl Kareny, the Hungarian scholar, classical scholar, saw this and understood this so deeply is that the walking or dancing, even still in Greece, they dance the circular dance of the labyrinth, but without that deep inner experience, I think, in connection. But at any rate, it, he said, the, the labyrinth is you walk it, you circle around and around and down and down to your deepest self at the center, the center of the labyrinth, which is life-giving. And there you confront the divine, the cosmic mind, not as other, but as self. And this is this is the secret of it all. Yeah. You know, we are all divine, immortal, and creative. And the labyrinth takes us to the knowledge of who we really are. Not to obey or follow, but to become the Christ, to be cosmic consciousness. Yeah, we, we have been so conditioned to look for truths and answers outside of yeah. us. 
all the and time. to follow. And the church, the Roman church had a lot to do with that, you know, is that they made, uh, oh, that's a bit of a story, but we could. Well, maybe, maybe we can go into that. You mentioned Christ, the Christ consciousness. And of course, for a Western person, I think most of the people who are listening to this podcast are are placed in the Western world, whatever that is. But anyway, uh, I think most people know what you mean, refer to when you say that. And and uh, also Christianity has been dominant for, for a long time in this uh, in these parts of the world. And so G- it's very interesting to 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 take to to uh, to learn about Jesus and what he actually said and did, and mm-hmm. and the, the fact that. Uh, what's written in the in the official bible uh, may not be exactly what he actually was talking about he, because he was he he actually was a was a was a representative of this shaman mystic tradition so tell us about the the, the nag hammadi texts and and what jesus really was talking about yes well and to do that very quickly i would go back to the judaic first temple tradition oh, yes. in which they did have the shamanic mystic ritual and they had uh what they called a wisdom literature and here the feminine existed with the masculine together they equally created the world and so they danced the dance of life together but by 621 bce there was a movement no one knows who the deuteronomist were but there was a they were a group of people who changed everything and Josiah went along with it, and they destroyed the first temple tradition, the shaman mystic tradition, and they destroyed all images of the feminine. There were icons, statues of her destroyed, and the tree was her symbol, because that was a symbol of life and giving the fruit of cosmic consciousness. Just burned them all down. They also got rid of the wisdom literature. Well, many Jews were not happy with this. They took Uh, the literature to uh, Egypt. And I think that some who later went to Babylon during the exile must have had it too. And I think that that tradition continued to live and later emerged uh, in Kabbalah uh, much later. I think think those are the roots of it. But then, according to Margaret Barker, who's a wonderful Old Testament scholar, and she's talking about once we found the Dead Sea Scrolls of the Jews, they were Jews who did not go along with the Second Temple. They felt they carried the true covenant of Israel, which was, of course, the shaman mystic tradition. When we found that library, and then right after World War II, and then we found at the same time, about the same time, these texts that were buried in Egypt, which were older, but they also were Gnostic. So we could see the Dead Sea Scrolls were Gnostic carry, uh, carrying on of the first temple tradition. And then here in Christianity were Christians who were trying to hold on to the true shamanic tradition of Jesus. And they buried those texts around 400 AD because they knew they were, they were told they would be burned otherwise. Yeah. And so we found those texts. So those we find it those are the ones that, that are called the, the Gnostics. Nagam- yes, they are Gnostics and then Nagamadi. So there are many forms of Gnosticism uh, and many ideas associated with it. But Gnosis really is the experiencing of that cosmic mind of which we are all a part. So uh, what we find in the the Jesus of the Nagamati text 
reveals that he is the shaman mystic. And Margaret Barker said that once we got the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Nagamati text, and we had all of the other texts that were not included in the canon decided on uh, during Constantine's time by the church fathers, then she said, we can see a much larger picture. And so she said that there were Jews who kept this tradition of the first temple. They were the Essenes, they were Therapeutae, and they were the early allegorists with Philo Judaeus. So here all over that area were Jews who separated from the second temple and tried to keep this living shaman mystic uh, go, uh, tradition going. And it looks as though those were the people who began the Jesus tradition, that that was actually probably out of the therapeutic. They were mystics, they were shamans. And uh, even some of the church fathers thought that they might've written the gospels. But at any rate, here is this Jesus. And we are told that there was a hidden tradition that Jesus taught. And of course, it's the tradition of going inward and experiencing the divinity of who we are and becoming the Christ. Even he makes it clear I did not come to save you. I came to remind you of who you are. Yes, <laughs> that is so beautiful. Yeah. And it's so, it's so strange anyway, when we think about it, how could we ever have thought somebody else could save us? Physically, they could, but spiritually, it, how it, could they do it? It really makes sense when you think about it. it it's really mm -hmm. strange, but, yeah. but they got away with it, the church fathers. Oh, they did, but they got away with it through terrible violence. I know. I mean, terrible, terrible, almost unrealizable violence. It's, it's just, that was one thing. And I knew that, but when I started doing the studies and seeing it, uh, it was, it was almost beyond what I could, could think that that would happen. And still they had, and they had the power, but that's how they suppressed and repressed this ancient tradition of who we are mm -hmm. and knowledge of who we are and really prepared us for totalitarian uh, regimes and dictators. You know, if we are always thinking to go outside ourselves and follow someone, it's always the power is out there. Then of course we are vulnerable to that in the physical political world, it seems to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, perhaps we should point out, well, a couple of things here. You were talking about the fem feminine and the masculine. That has nothing to do with, with gender, really, <laughs> because it's all, it's, it's all in us, all, in us yes, all. everybody, that's who we are. That's, that's one thing. And another thing is that a shaman is not a priest, because, I mean, you were talking now about this following, the following. A priest mm -hmm. is someone you follow, but a shaman is just, how would you describe a shaman? In this well, if, if he's, there are a lot of shamans that one wouldn't want to be around, but a true shaman is one who knows how to trigger within himself and within the community uh, altered states of consciousness. Mm. In other words, he can, through ritual, he can trigger our ability to release that valve that restricts us for everyday life and experience cosmic consciousness. Mm. And that can be done. Now, the San people, uh, it's through dancing and, and music and drumming. But dancing, I mean, they can dance for hours and hours. And then they describe it as this boiling up of energy until it comes off the top of your head. Well, that's one description. But uh, shamans would really, in they, 
the dance, uh, repetitive movements and repetitive sounds we know is one of the triggers. And so also there were sacred uh, plants that shamans and people became very uh, in, intelligent in their use and combination of them for thousands and thousands of years. Mm. And so many cultures use the plants, but even in the ritual of the movement and the chanting, uh, we now know that a, a slow integrative movement begins in the brain that flows through the brain and connects the brain components. So they were onto something, you know? Yes, yes. Uh, but I think that it's, it's sad to me that I've met people who are interested in shamanism and have gone to various places to work with shamans, but it's, oh no, I would never use sacred medicine. I, I'll do it on my own. But I think, what do we ever do on our own? <laughs> you know, I mean, of course we have to have food from the earth. And that's what the earth mother was like. It's that giving of the earth and we take it. It's a, it's a communal thing. This all of this business of living and loving and being born and dying. And this fruit, the tree, uh, before the Deuteronomist was always the God and the goddess together were there pointing to the sacred fruit as, you know, with their hands out, take it, it is here for you. And then in Egypt later, I, I just love the images of the tree. The trunk is actually the feminine, which would be the life force, life itself is giving, sometimes it's a glass, a liquid <laughs> of something to drink or fruit. And, uh, and very often the masculine is symbolized as all of us in time and space. The feminine is that eternal being born and dying and being reborn. It's life itself and we are experiencing life. So, but she's always giving. And some of the trees are sacred medicine. That's some of the trees that were sacred to her. So I think that's another misunderstanding that we have of somehow wanting to do it alone. People can. And in India, they used uh, medicine for a while. And then uh, many of them now, you know, it's uh, long term meditation. But I think that we're in an age in which we are going to find many ways of triggering, opening that valve yeah. and experiencing who we are, because we must if we want to survive. Mm. We can't repress and suppress it any longer. Yeah, the use of ayahuasca and DMT and the psilocybin and all those, those uh, substances are, is increasing fast now. And maybe in some yeah. cases it's not used properly, but, but still there is an interest and in the, there is a longing, as you say. Yes, a deep longing. Mm. And during the 60s, I was teaching during that time. And certainly uh, people didn't know how to use this and they didn't have the background or the understanding but they crashed into another world. Yeah. Some actually, I had a, a student um, of the father of a young man who had stepped off the roof of a building up at Berkeley, uh, University of California, Berkeley oh. with uh, LSD. So many people were very against it because it could be dangerous without knowing where to be, what to do and that kind of thing. But I think you know, some of our mathematicians and scientists had those experiences. Yes, they have used it. Mm -hmm. And that really developed a, a mathematics and a quantum understanding. Yeah, and maybe that's why we need shamans even today. I mean, the, the shaman is more like a teacher, I, I understand, while a priest is, is like a father figure or some, some, some 
someone you have to follow. But a shaman yes, is it, not that. Not to follow. It's uh, that he can trigger it. And eventually we should all be shamans. Yes. All of us should be. <laughs> so uh, to fast forward a little bit more here, we, we come to the, um, you talk in the book about, uh, I think, five waves of Renaissance, some kinds of varieties of, of Renaissance. Of course, there's one wave that is actually called the Renaissance, the Italian mm -hmm. Renaissance, but there were more. The first one that you, you, write at length about is the high middle ages and that's i found that really fascinating there were so many cathedrals built at that time and they were built in a way that weren't i mean they weren't actually sanctioned by the the, the official harsh no. mandated religion because they were built in a way that they were to revere the individual connection to god and also the feminine principle and you, you mm -hmm. write a lot about chartres the cathedral in chartres and i was yeah. I, I really want to go there actually can you tell <laughs> yeah. us a little bit about the high middle ages and, and the, the significance of what happened then well you know i was surprised myself because i thought well that's christianity and i thought <laughs> yeah see and but that i think was the truly profound awakening after the suppression by the Roman church in the latter part of the fourth century on, in the late 300s, that that was a real suppression came when it was formed as the Roman church, the church, the only church. And then the murder and the destruction of, the, of all other traditions took place. So it was about 700 years of this just incredible suppression. Mm. And uh, about 1000 AD, uh, it began to, something began to emerge. And I think a lot of it had to do also with uh, the Sufi tradition and uh, the, uh, the, the Arab uh, sort of takeover, but Arabic culture at that time, uh, many Christians fled. Uh, to Baghdad and then to Persia, because they had men and women were equal. They were working and doing research together. I mean, it was just a, a, a profound renaissance in the in that culture and also all the way up into Spain. So Cordova had powerful influence. People throughout Europe would go, Europe was undeveloped. We mm. learned so much from the Islamic culture. And so that helped to make this possible. And I think that there was such a longing for something more than what the church was giving. And the church had come, become quite corrupt too, but there wasn't that individual experience. So at Chart, it so happened that there were, and I didn't know this until I did the research, that there were teachers there who uh, really understood the hidden tradition that Jesus taught. And that's what they worked with. Mm. And there were, um, there were streams of this hidden tradition that Jesus taught coming throughout Europe. Uh, there was uh, Paul and Dionysus, uh, Areopagite, who was in Athens. And he talks about this person who came Paul who came and was like on fire with spirit. So the Paul that I knew <laughs> was not like that, but the Paul that Areopi that uh, Dionysus knew, he just was absolutely taken with it. And he had been initiated in other mystery schools. And he saw this Christianity, this hidden tradition that Jesus taught as that way to open, open to cosmic consciousness. And so his teachings 
well, he was to teach in Athens and Europe, and Paul went through the Mediterranean. But uh, his teachings went into France. They were always, they're called the pseudo Dionysus. It wasn't pseudo, they were just the ones who copied exactly what he had taught and kept it going. And that somehow got to uh, Chartres and mm. these teachers. But through other ways too, they actually taught uh, the hidden tradition. And they also were very intellectual. They uh, taught all from the conceptual mind, I would say. They really nurtured the conceptual mind, very brilliant in that way. And their writings are brilliant, but they also nurtured the symbolic mind, the spiritual side and the heart. Mm -hmm. And so some really incredible things happened at Chartres. And then of course they built the cathedral there. Now who's the they? They were just called the builders. But we hear that these builders were initiates uh, of life and death, birth and death mysteries of Egypt. Now Egypt, it had at its core in the earlier uh, phases, um, those people who really were shaman, mystic, scientist. That was another amazing uh, thing that I learned with this, that depth of their understanding of the masculine and the feminine and that beautiful relationship of opening and and loving and desiring it was not like later of you know all these no's and don'ts and evils no it was loving life and desiring it and living it fully the male and female together so um but i think that they also had science too mm -hmm. they understood the science so that was there, but it was lost. The Egyptians uh, were very crucial to the Greeks, but the Greeks never really quite understood the depths, I think, of the Egyptians. So it's all there. But then when it comes into Chartres, we have these builders that are, we are told, were initiated people from Egypt. That that was that, and I think it was probably even deeper than that. And somehow these builders were all over the earth. This is a mystery. I don't understand. It is it a mystery, but it's fascinating. And they built these churches in fairly brief amount of time compared to how yes. it was normally built. Absolutely. And they, the knowledge, uh, architectural knowledge that they had, and also the uh, stained glass. I'm told that after that was done, those cathedrals were finished, that no one could find anyone who could do the stained glass. Mm. Also, there were those uh, Sufis too, who had a very deep uh, understanding of spirituality and knowledge in the physical world. Uh, they were brought because of the Crusades to France. They may have helped certainly with these, but the tradition was that the people who, that the temple was always not just a place, a, an architectural structure, it was structured in a way to trigger our knowledge of who we are, mm -hmm. a kind of to vibrate. And we're also told that all of those churches uh, in France to Our Lady were built on the ground to, uh, in, the, in the same pattern of Virgo, Our Lady in the sky. Yeah. This would not have been strange because Egypt always felt what was what was in the heavens should be on the earth. Mm. So that again, sort of linked to the Egyptian builders. But yes, it was just that one should be able to go into a temple. Like in Egypt, a temple was every temple uh, was supposedly constructed to attract certain energies of the cosmos. 
And we are told that each temple is different and each all together, they are the complete sacred science, which the Egyptians knew. Mm. I don't know. And they, some people really believe they are our key to understanding this depth of who we are and our relationship to the cosmos. So much has been destroyed and the Egyptologists had no, no idea no. Uh, about the inner, <laughs> but there are those who did and who are working on it. Schwander de Lubitz was important. And I think Jeremy Nadler saw that the pyramid texts were shamanic texts. And uh, Alison Roberts has also seen the depths of these rituals. So I think we're moving in the direction of mm. truly finding that key to that culture. But I think this somehow, all of this was finding its way uh, into uh, France and uh, at the time of, of the high middle ages. And then of course came the, it was, in, it was depicted in the cathedrals, but it was also then depicted in story of uh, the uh, Parsifal yeah, and the, holy, uh, the, the grail. Holy grail yeah. Yeah, and here it was after 700 years, mm. such a longing for that grail, for that gnosis of knowing yeah. oneself. Yeah, that's fascinating. And talking about Egypt and the connection with Egypt here, you know, of course, also the, the theories that, that, that the pyramids are actually a lot, lot older than, than is officially recognized. Yes, and the Sphinx I mean, and yes, yeah, so that 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 knowledge may may have may have come from far far back. I I think we have a lot to learn yet about that. We have a lot to learn about that. Yes, <laughs> mm -hmm. it's fascinating. So then there were more waves. You talk about the Rosicrucian um, Renaissance and the Italian Renaissance was in the 1400s, and then there was the Ru Ru Rosicrucian. We don't need to go very deeply into that, but that was in the 1600s, and then there was a, another wave in the in the late. 18th century and the 19th century, of course, which is uh, called the the Romantic era, I think, Germ yeah, it's, Germany and England. Yes, yes, yes. It was, first of all, this awakening of 700 years in the high Middle Ages. And then not long after that really was Italy. But mm. and there were there was such a, um, a desire to uh, develop, to go like Pico Miradillon, uh, Della Mirandola was such an incredible young person. I mean, he just, and he saw this tradition in the underground traditions of alchemy and Kabbalah. And uh, he wanted so much uh, to bring that together. In fact, he had a plan to bring all of the people all over Europe together to Rome and each one of them talk about their tradition and see that at the heart, they were all the same. He was this young, uh, certainly not very diplomatic, person who went to Rome to have that printed so that uh, everybody could come. And of course, this is the way to do it, you know, to have them come to talk, because he felt so much, we'd find that at the heart, they were the same. Well, of course, Rome, the church, when they <laughs> got wind of what he was doing, they wouldn't let it be printed, and they canceled the conference and put him in prison. <laughs> so it was so hard for this tradition to really be continued from the high middle ages, but it did. And it really fed into the later one at 1600, the Rosicrucian. And, and just a, one thing about that that's so important is that when that was destroyed by the church again, and uh, the Habsburgs, church and state, uh, they would not, they were scientists. And many times, wherever the shamans could be allowed to develop, they became scientists, of course, because that's just a conceptual way of understanding what we've experienced spiritually. And so that was uh, suppressed. Their texts were, were destroyed. 
And then there was a 30 years war between the Protestants and Catholics. And then when science could actually develop again, it was in England in the Royal Society for the study of science, mm -hmm. but nobody could study consciousness. Nobody could even mention the inner world. And that's how the Western worldview developed. Is yeah. that I mean, counterintuitively enough, it was the Roman Catholic Church that determined the development of materialistic science. Exactly, exactly. Telling us about, so, so explain how that happened. Well, it just happened that these scientists and some of them had been a part of this schematic scientific uh, movement in the 1600s uh, because there was quite a bit of traffic between uh, England and Heidelberg and Prague uh, there was, it was just an explosion of knowledge and, and engineers coming together and books and booksellers who were all part of this wonderful movement. Mathematics, they were the ones who gave mathematics to us. And uh, so it was just a, a very creative period of time. And they were, they were struggling with understanding nature mathematically and spiritually and so on. But uh, when uh, they tried to gain some power in Prague, uh, which was somewhat legitimate because Protestants and Catholics could be very uh, suppressive and repressive, but the Protestants always allowed more freedom. Uh, Rudolf in Prague was Catholic, but he allowed alchemists and uh, hermitists and Sufis. Everybody was there practically, you know, in Prague. So they knew when he died that there would be another Catholic and they wouldn't be able to pursue these uh, studies. So they tried to put in uh, Heidelberg, the Prince of Heidelberg and his wife, but, and they did because they were wanted uh, to a great degree in Prague, but uh, they're called the winter King and queen because once that happened, the church moved in on them with the Habsburgs, destroyed everything. I mean, it was even Heidelberg was destroyed. It was a beautiful Renaissance city, you might say. And so here were these scientists who they all wanted a, a, a renaissance for the world and enlightenment. This was the true beginnings of the enlightenment yeah. is that we would be able to know who we are, to know how to go inward, and then to understand it intellectually and mathematically. And they would have an educational system. They would help the whole world to see this. Well, that no, they weren't. And that was destroyed. And so many of them sort of, tucked tail and went back to their home countries and were part of this royal society. But they couldn't really say who they were or what they'd been involved in. Mm -hmm. So there were those who knew. It's always, as you said in the beginning, that underground. So all of this knowledge had to go underground as the alchemist or the hermeticist or mm -hmm. uh, the Oh, and of course, the Cathars, there's another one. Mm. <laughs> That's, they kept that tradition. Uh, that was about 1200 when they were destroyed. But the Cathars in southern France, of course, it was a beautiful area, prosperous. And uh, the Cathars, so many uh, things have been said about them that I think are not true. I think only now we're really beginning to see beyond what the Inquisition uh, had said about them. But there again, I mean, they... Uh, they certainly upheld that inner mm. uh, tradition, and they were oh, just, and killed. just destroyed, yeah. uh, thousands and thousands of yeah. them. Almost uh, and, and that, but 
but it's interesting. It seems to me, and research is being done on that, that they did continue throughout Europe and they uh, were printers and paper makers. And in the bookmarks, we can see their symbols survived through those bookmarks yeah. uh, in the in in the paper, so that's an, that. I think we're going to learn a lot more about them in yeah. in, in the coming years. Alchemy, maybe you mentioned alchemy a couple of times here, and I think for for ordinary people, it's it's about making gold out of lead or something. But it has <laughs> to do with that. No, yeah, yes, it's really uh, yes. The lead is is ourselves before we know who we are, yeah. <laughs> and so it's a symbol of then to create the goal is to create the light in ourselves of mm. consciousness of who we are. But the alchemists probably are rooted in the ancient Egyptian uh, mysteries of death and rebirth. And they, as that began to wane, these people who knew these mysteries uh, were alchemists. And many of them went down a little, well, they were in Alexandria. And then there were others, uh, uh, the um, pre-Socratic philosophers in Greece, 500 years before Christ. And they also had a powerful, a shamanic, a scientific, inventive, uh, diplomatic tradition. And um, who is the person who's done so much with that? Peter Kingsley, mm -hmm. his work, when I saw his work, I, I was so excited about it that he actually saw, because when I was studying that, nobody said anything about shamanic culture, but he has retranslated uh, from Parmenides and very convincing uh, work. So here was this tradition still alive after Christianity was trying to get rid of anything that wasn't its own. So they were moving over into Alexandria and then they all had to go down to Achmim. So the alchemists were there too. There were Greeks, there were Arabs, there were uh, all sorts of people who were working in this underground tradition. Finally, they had to go over to Baghdad because the Christians were pursuing them, so they couldn't really exist. So here were the alchemists also working on how do we trigger that valve within us so that we can experience who we are, this cosmic consciousness. We are, our, our heritage is to live in connection with this, not in denial or ignorance of it, and so it, they then went on to Persia, joined with the Sufis, and during the Crusades, they came back to France. And I think that's also yes. how that Renaissance, powerful Renaissance, began. Yes. That's interesting. Ironically enough, they came back with some deeper knowledge <laughs> yes. of what Christianity should be about. Yes, uh, and of course, it was uh, all from different traditions. You know, Jung, Carl Jung said that, uh, that always underneath uh, the surface, which was Christianity, was that underlying alchemical tradition of, I think he said 1200 years, 14, I don't know, but actually it was far longer than Christianity. Mm -hmm. And he saw it as that tradition that actually complemented Christianity. Christianity had done away with the feminine and the wisdom teachings and uh, alchemy maintained it because of course for us to be whole we have to experience all of that the masculine the feminine uh the light the dark the, the whatever is that wholeness in fact vico jean-baptiste vico in italy at the same time as the uh enlightenment philosophers in france he was writing about wholeness about the symbolic mind he knew that it was developed 
it evolved earlier than the conceptual mind. And he knew very well that if we want to experience our wholeness, we have to allow both the symbolic mind and the conceptual mind. As he put it, there must, uh, in order to experience our wholeness, there must be a dynamic and integral continuum of movement between the symbol and the idea always always that's our wholeness and we can now say it has to flow through the heart because that is our central brain that connects us to other dimensions but the french philosophers it was no no we that's all nonsense anything that came before only the rational mind is important and we have achieved the apex of that mm -hmm. and so it was a very arrogant as the uh, uh, Western intellectualism tends to be uh, because they only, I mean, if we think about it, we are a culture that really only valued and developed the rational conceptual component, which cannot exist without the symbolic. And we forgot all about the heart until recently as being a brain component. It gives no. more to the mind or brain than the brain gives to it. So uh, New discoveries was, are, are coming. Yeah, to, we have rediscovered it. You emphasize a lot in, in, in the book and, and in other contexts uh, what you're talking about right now here, that the West, the Western culture, the Western world has rejected the shaman mystic traditions and the, and the, the knowledge, the insight that each and every individual can, can, achieve, can attain um, higher dimensions and, uh, and reach God, if you will. But what about the, the other cultures of the world? I mean, the Chinese, the, the, the Indians, Southeast Asia, the Arabic culture, have, have they been so much more uh, tolerant towards this, this ancient knowledge? Or, I mean, is it only the Western world that has rejected this so totally? <laughs> well, uh, I haven't studied that as I have the West, but I do know that certainly the Sufis are very ancient and they were attached to Islam. Uh, they're very different sometimes from what we hear of Islam, but mm. Islam itself is, is quite different from what we hear. But the Sufis are very ancient tradition, but they had trouble too in Persia too. They were persecuted later. And uh, I think that in India, that was probably a very ancient tradition that survived. Uh, uh, we're told that very ancient depictions of highly developed states of yoga were depicted, you know, were around. So yeah. long before we, we thought some of the latest uh, stages of understanding. So I don't know about that. That's not, and China certainly had with Taoism and uh, they had that, but there tended to be uh, from those who didn't understand what was being talked about, uh, that, uh, I was just thinking about. I mean, if you look at the 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 the, uh, the 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 leaders, the leadership, the the top down rule in all these parts of the world, it's it's it looks more or less the same. It's been violence, and uh, there have been there's been slavery, and there's been all kinds of bad things happening. So uh, I, I was I was just I'm I'm not I'm not defending the West, but I was thinking maybe it's a little bit unfair to only. <laughs> Uh, depict the West as, as the, the sole uh, culprit here? <laughs> well, it was the only culprit I was going to study. Yes. <laughs> it was about Western culture. Yeah, I and, yeah. and certainly the other cultures had traditions. And we didn't even know we had 
a, a spiritual tradition. No, that's the interesting thing that you you have dug up all these these all this knowledge about our actually that we actually had these traditions. These <laughs> that we that we did that we we not to look always to some to the east. Uh, we have it ourselves, and we need to understand that. But uh, no, I think that uh, one can get discouraged when we look around the world yeah. and see that. What is this with power and leadership that tends to make us uh, neurotic and pathological? Uh, how do we have a culture? I think the whole world has to ask this question. You know, how do we have a culture in which all of our technology, all of our knowledge is for the growth and development of the human being life nurturing for the whole planet, for animal life, plants. How do we, uh, you know, Maria Gambutis talks beautifully about that with old Europe. She said any technology they had was always used to enhance life itself. Mm. That that was the most natural thing is that you wouldn't create things that could uh, cause harm to the human being. Mm. And somehow we, we lost that, I mean, our technology today has left us out of the equation very often. Yeah, well, we lost, I think we lost that the general sense of being close to nature or close to our, our souls, we lost a long time ago. But then you can discuss about, you can talk about today's technology and today's uh, uh, way of living and all that. We, uh, hopefully I will, I will get back to that a little bit later. But you mentioned, I mean, before uh, this has to do with what you're talking about right now that world war ii was a shock to you when you were you were just a, a small child and you couldn't really understand what was happening it was the grown-ups that were fighting which was totally incomprehensible to you so you were always i guess a seeker and and um, i understand the the true transformation came when you experienced these the deaths of your mother's son pishti and your husband ishtvan and and you and Istvan, you you immediately had came into in contact with Pishti's consciousness, as far as I understand. Yes, uh, I I would say that I was looking for this all my life, and when I taught myth and symbol uh, to students during the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, it was always a searching, and and they and and I we were together in this search. We saw here are these symbolic structures, for instance, in fairy tales. They are very, it's very clear. They're a structure of the psyche. And we certainly discovered that, you know, a sacred text or an authentic text is only that text which is organized by the organizing principles of the human psyche. It's not something we make up out of the conceptual mind. It really emerges out of those principles which uh, are like the laws of nature we live by. These are the principles, they reveal themselves to us in these stories or in architecture or in music or in paintings. And we know when one is authentic because it's life-giving and life-supporting. And that's why if we read in the Deuteronomist uh, version of the tree of life, it's totally inverted. Mm. It's that you should not eat this. You may not eat it. It's a sin mm. to eat it. And if you do, you'll discover that you die. Whereas really you discover that you're immortal and divine and creative. So it's, and their punishment and shame and exile. This is of course, not a true myth. This is an inversion. And it's so important uh, to know that. 
And um, so I, I worked with that for many years and it, it was really a, a wonderful time that we had and the students were so involved in it too. And then I, I thought when I finished my doctorate, I thought, you know, I really had it with the rational mind. I'm just going to go to South America and study with uh, shamans and see what I can find out. And I did that twice. And I did, uh, I did experience uh, another way of being in the world, I think. I think it would helped me. But I and I did start having experiences. And I also then worked with sacred medicine. And that in itself was so powerful. I mean, things really began to change. And uh, then uh, my mother was killed in an automobile accident. And then one year later, in fact, they took him off the life support Strangely, it wasn't my doing exactly the day and exactly the hour that my mother had been killed one year before. So that was a synchronistic. There were many synchronistic events that happened. And it was then my husband was killed in Hungary on a trip two years later. But in those two years, right after our son's death, we had very powerful experiences with Pishti. Some were spontaneous experiences. I think something with his death opened that in a way, which does sometimes happen. But we also use sacred medicine but many were spontaneous. And my husband was one who had not been interested in this before. He respected my interest, but it wasn't his. But uh, two weeks before our son was killed, he had a vision in his office and he saw Pishti's car on the side of the freeway and Pishti's body superimposed on the top. And oh. then he said to himself, he said, I knew he was dead because it was two different dimensions. And then he said, I said, oh, that's right, Pishti it's almost time for you to do this. And that was such a shock to him. And then Pishi said, that's right, dad, I'll be out of the house for a little while. Mm. Well, and then he became totally unconscious of it until the call came through that he was in the trauma center. But Ishwan didn't mention it to me until after his death. Uh, but he said, I tried to hope that he could, but that vision was so powerful that I felt that he, he would die. But he said, the interesting thing was, is that he felt we knew this, this, we knew this. <laughs> and of course, after Pishti's memorial, then we did start experiencing his consciousness. And, and in such a powerful, loving, joyful way, and could see that he was creating on the other side, and that many on the other side were very concerned about the earth, and they were working with us here in the earth. And, uh, and I had uh, my first vision after he died was of a spiral of people spiraling down to be born on the earth. Mm. And it was like Native American chanting. And of course, they have tried to keep the vision of this indigenous peoples, but they were chanting and I knew what they were chanting. And they were saying, our brothers and sisters on the earth are dreaming a terrible dream. Yeah. And that they wanted to come to help us to wake to up help, to, to see help us. Yeah. And yeah. So we had many visions with him. And not only did he want us to know he's okay, that death, there's no death, but also this is a project that we were working on and that people all over the earth are working on it. They're not going to get in the six o'clock news, <laughs> but that there's so many of us. Yeah. We're connected in a way we've never been connected before. And we're, 
are, we know we're working together. Mm-hmm. And as what was beautiful was to realize that we're working with intelligence and consciousness on the other side. That's what we should know. That's our heritage to work consciously with that other side. Do you believe we choose our preconditions in life before we are born to learn? You know, that's, that's a, that's a, that's such a, a question that I don't know how to answer yeah. because when I can think of so many situations and people who would say, I didn't choose mine, <laughs> but uh, I, I don't know. All I know is that it seemed to us both that we knew that this was going to take, this was, of course, you can't determine everything because we're co-creating with other people, but that, uh, yeah, that's why I said preconditions and not, not choose the whole life. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah. But I, I, I think so. And I, it's as though we do come with some notion of our creativity. And then we learn how to bring about that creativity in matter by co-creating with others. Um, and then remembering, I think this is a, this is a pretty uh, difficult uh, job to come into the earth at this point, you I know, when so it's, yeah. yeah, it's uh, to get in touch with it. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing there. And then you find, oh, there is something, but thank God we have quantum physics, you know, that, that supports yes. us. We cannot in the West do anything without support of science. We just have to have that as our anchor. And, and we do. And so, and going back to other cultures, I think too, one thing that happened is that the West became so powerful and controlling that it did influence the rest of the world as well. Certainly they had their darkness within themselves and within their own cultures. But I think that today we have to see that America and Europe, we've had a very powerful influence on the world. No, that's true. Mm-hmm. That's very true. So maybe that's, yeah, that's why it's relevant to, to pinpoint, to, to emphasize the West's uh, activities in this, in this respect. What, talking about uh, quantum physics, what, what significance do you attribute to the recent discoveries of quantum physics and, and, and also uh, the connection between brain, heart and, and mind? And also, I mean, the, the increasing number of near-death experiences because it has become easier to resuscitate people with, with uh, uh, cardiac arrest. What, what significance does this have for our possible awakening, if, if you will? It, it's like all of these things are synchronistically happening. Mm. And so many began to happen in the 20th century. If I look around and, 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 and feel a little bit thrown off or depressed about all the darkness or the violence, and there is tremendous violence, I have to remember, wait a minute, uh, think about this. In the 20th century, we discovered these cultures. We discovered our own roots in the West in a deep spiritual potential. And we've also uh, discovered quantum physics in near the end of the 20th century. It became clear that there are other dimensions of reality and that what is once connected is not separated and that consciousness does continue. And it's so interesting to me that mystics describe the spirit world in the very similar way as scientists describe the quantum field. Yeah. You know, it just, I think when I first started teaching, I used to, in teaching composition, there would always be a, a, a section on, we can never bring science and religion together. <laughs> and here I am still alive, 
And we are bringing spirituality and science. Of course, they have always been together. Yes. I mean, to experience. We just forgot, we just forgot it. Yeah. And it was suppressed so that we couldn't remember it. You know, when you think about uh, how, how people who haven't experienced it, for instance, in the Roman church, there were heretics, anyone who talked about experiencing that within. Mm. It was out, the Gnostics were the most dangerous people, but of course, because they wouldn't have had power. If we all experienced that ourselves, it would have been a whole different thing as in the mystery schools. Mm. There wouldn't yeah. be any need for bishops or priests or popes or no, any of no. the community. Well, you know, Richard Maurice Buck, who wrote Cosmic Consciousness, when he said that, you know, he was spending an evening with uh, people, they were talking about poetry and various poets, and they were reading them, and he was going home in the carriage, and he thought at first the city in front of him was on fire, and then he realized it was within him, and oh. he had this spontaneous experience of cosmic consciousness and he gave it that name. And he said, I don't know how long I was there, but he said, I knew in that moment, I knew we are all one mm. and we are all born out of love and consciousness and that there is no death we all, and that we are all moving toward this understanding, this living in cosmic conscious, just consciousness, just as we move from the animal state to an Equal consciousness state, self-aware state, we are moving to a place where we will all have this cosmic consciousness mm. and we will be able to work with that. We will create out of that consciousness in the material world, be deeply connected. Here's a question that is perhaps a little bit strange or stupid or something, I don't know. <laughs> but I mean, the fact if you're if you're convinced that we we don't die when the body dies, we we have we belong somewhere else, so to speak. Does that make it easier to accept that there is a, there are problems on this earth or does it make it more difficult? Uh, I mean, violence and, and uh, yeah, lack of love. You know, I, I think that violence and uh, censorship, uh, the, the stopping of any kind of growth and development is always something to grieve. Mm. Uh, I think that- But it's also if, an experience. It is an experience. It is an experience of, not saying of how that, not to do it. Not that experience, but it is an experience. <laughs> well, it is. And, you know, I've never been able to accept that statement mm -hmm. that, well, God will never give you more than you can uh, mm -hmm. experience mm -hmm. yeah. because there are people all over the world who can't possibly assimilate what's happening to them and they're starving mm -hmm. and people, you're right. And that, again, I have no absolutes on that one or answers, but I think it is an experience, but I would like to think that as creators, we we we're learning how to create in matter, and we our our ancestors knew that we needed to create according to the laws of nature yeah. and our own nature. And if we go against those laws, we're going to hurt and we're going to cause pain to others. And if we go completely against them, we're going to be very violent. As Jesus said in the Nag Hammadi text, I love that statement when he said, if you bring forth what is within you, it will save you. But if you do not bring that forth, it will destroy you. And I kind of like to look at our creativity in that way. Let's bring that forth. And we have to work with the laws of nature and bringing it forth in our own creative individual way. And if we cause harm, we can see, yes, that's an experience. I don't want to do it that way again. I mean, I think 
if you know we are reincarnated we've done some bad things i'm sure you know throughout our lives and hopefully in my past i hope i learned i don't want to do that again <laughs> you know, let me do it a different way let me do it in a way that there can be such joy and love and experience you yeah. know in life yeah i agree i agree but it, in the book merchants of light and, and in other contexts you have you, you paint a pretty grim picture of the world right now especially at the beginning, <coughs> beginning of that book and and uh, in in my i i have a fairly different view on what the world looks like right now actually because i've been i actually wrote a book that was all about that the world is better than we think so uh my thinking is that i mean i think the world has 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 never been better than, than it is today my thinking is that if we had been completely cut off from spiritual truths i mean love compassion respect we would not have been here today with human rights, less bloody wars, which they are actually, but few people know that, less poverty and actually also improved stewardship of nature because we didn't, we didn't take care of nature 100 years ago, 200 years ago, the way we do today. Uh, so maybe the sense that many have that it's worse than ever comes from the fact, or it's an expression of the fact that we see our shortcomings and missteps more clearly than ever. What, what do you think of that? <laughs> well, you know, uh, my friend Kim, whom you just met, uh, we're always saying when we're seeing a film of other times, oh, thank God we weren't born then. <laughs> you yes. know? Thank God. And we, we, yes, there's so many things today, so many possibilities. Uh, and, and we see what we're doing wrong in a sense that we don't want to do it that way but uh and i think that i absolutely agree with you there but i also think that and i'll stick just to the west because i know that better other countries have to deal with theirs or or the east but i think that but the fact that this deep potential within us has been suppressed for power and control if for so many years so many centuries that it has harmed so many people. And there's a, a deep neurosis or pathology and illness in many that can only think in terms of the future, in terms of control and power over, or for example, uh, all that te technology is not as it was earlier, mm. even in a lesser developed form, it, it was, it's not focused on how to enhance what is human. I mean, if we're thinking in terms of artificial intelligence, are those people who are working with that aware of that true potential to experience the cosmos, to awaken the heart and all of the components of the brain? We are already more than they can give us. Yeah. I think artificial intelligence can enhance, but to enhance, you've got to know what is potential. Exactly. I see. I see. Every some technology is neutral in itself. Every technology is neutral in itself. So it's you just have to yeah develop it wisely, of course. Yes, and if it's if we want to fool around with <laughs> the human being and the mm. brain, uh, we need to know something. We need to do the research on the mind when it functions in its wholeness and experiences other dimensions of reality before we start um, bungling through with our, with our notions of artificial intelligence. I mean, some of it can be highly enhancing, but we've got to know who we are first. Yeah. 
and the research should be there, I think, and with our children to help our children to, to know, you know, to ways. Well, there's a school. I some uh, person told me the other day. There's I can't even remember, but uh, where children are taught, uh, they're blindfolded and they're taught to see with without seeing they're taught to this deep intuitive sense of their presence and it's amazing i saw a film of them blindfolded and they could see who was there oh. and uh, it's interesting i think there's so many things that if we really wanted to do research yeah. on enhancing the human being it would be to let's see what we can do with the abilities that are innate we don't yeah. even know them really yeah. Hopefully and like for fun. instance, the sand people mm -hmm. that uh, they can be out in the desert and they will hear this like a tapping at the heart and they know that someone's trying to get through to them and they, they pick it up. I mean, just think there's so much that we have and I hope that it won't be destroyed, yeah. <laughs> you know, in our ignorance of, of our potential. But I, I agree with you. I think we have tremendous potential today. And I said that in the book, all of these things that came, we became aware of and we're bringing together. But at the same time, uh, there's, we did not bring forth what was within us. That's a very good sentence from Jesus from the Nag Hammadi text mm -hmm. there. It should be written in, in every church, actually, instead of the things that are, are there now. Yes. Yeah. And that, uh, that's, that's dangerous for our whole culture. Yeah. I was the just thinking that maybe this this I mean this journey through the 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 quote unquote spiritual wasteland that we have we have made um, has had a purpose. I mean maybe humanity humanity has in this way had the full experience of a three dimensional reality if you see what I mean the hard way as it were. <laughs> so then there would have been some kind of it's it's difficult to understand that from this perspective, but from a higher perspective maybe maybe there was some kind of meaning to it. You know, uh, we can't say no to that. <laughs> you know, we have to be open to every possibility. Every possibility, yes. And God knows, and we know, <laughs> that what we're learning through seeing this kind of suffering uh, of children, how can some of these children in these places, they can never tap into their potential. Mm. And, you know, I had, um, I think that that was really trying to be communicated to me. I had... Uh, uh, an experience in Death Valley of all places. Hmm. My husband and I went there after Pishti's death and we worked with San Pedro, the sacred plant from Peru, South America. And, um, and it seemed that, I don't know, for some reason or other, they were kind of present for me. They must, I don't know what happened, but I went so deep that I couldn't come back, you might say, in a sense, I realized it. But when I did come back, it was a voice that was screaming. I, it, I knew I was in grief for Pishti, but what I was experiencing was way beyond anything I could, one individual could experience. It was like I felt this just moving through the desert and coming through my body and through my throat. And it was screaming, it can never be healed. Mm. And it was like that sense of all of the suffering. And the, there was that, consciousness on the earth i think that yeah. it couldn't be healed i think it's it can pretty be harsh healed. if it can never be oh yeah it is too hard but i think that was the experience yeah. of perhaps we could say the pachamama the earth mother to yeah. see all of this and i felt throughout south america that she was there showing me making me see some things of what our choices had brought and yet i i I knew that it was beyond me, but I also knew that it was an experience. She was experiencing that. That was an experience that you could have on the earth when you saw 
the darkness. But also there was uh, another powerful side of that archetype. And I look at it as an archetype now is that that loving return of the heart consciousness. And that was so powerful. My husband experienced this and I did too. And I felt her return. And I knew I had taken that voice of the desert within me. And she came and entered me and embraced that desert woman. And I, I feel that's a bringing together of the two sides of an archetype. Yes, we have learned a lot and yeah. maybe we needed to. And we learned that we came to a point that maybe it could never be healed. There's nothing. And yet there is that vast cosmic loving force that enters into us and embraces us and brings wholeness to that view. Yeah. I mean, the world is integrating now for the first time in recorded history, which means that it's probably easier to reach a critical mass of people. And if, so. we can, yeah. if we can merge spirituality with science, I think the scientific language will resonate with, with a lot of people, a lot of modern people, which makes it mm -hmm. perhaps possible that we are entering a time or the time is ripe for some kind of awakening. I, mean, I believe that. I absolutely think that. And, and it's beautiful. And I like that. And I think we do. We are merging them because they belong together. They are together. Well, it's just another language. And that it's a false dichotomy. The, yeah. Yes. And in the West, we need that language. We need say I needed scientific language. And I, I mean, I'm not a scientist, but to the degree that I could use that language, it was so healing for me. So mm. yes, I think that, and people all over the earth are having their own experiences and near death experiences, as you mentioned. Uh, and scientists know that's happening. Doctors know their patients are going through these things. Yeah. Uh, so uh, yes, I think that we are at a time in which we are beginning to bring together our past and realize our potential at the same time that we've got to do business with what was not brought forth, the darkness that we have allowed to be in the world. But I think we're, I think we can do it. I think we have that, that understanding and that potential that's growing. Betty Kovach, it has been a true pleasure speaking with you today. Tell us where the listeners and the viewers uh, can find your work and, and your books. Well, they can get the books in any place where books and ebooks are sold, uh, or they can get them at Comlock, uh, K-A-M-L-A-K.com, Comlock. And uh, if uh, you sign up for our newsletter, which tells more about what's going on, then you can also get a chapter uh, sent to you from Merchants of Light. So, um, and, and there are many, many things on the website is comlock.com. So comlock.com. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Uh -huh. So thank and you. Notice the, notice the inner ML, Merchants of Light. That came to me in a, as a surprise. Oh, I did yeah. not know. <laughs> okay. Yes. So I think it's a name it was supposed to have. I understand. Well, thank you so much and, and good luck with your light work. Oh, thank you. Thank you.